Today, what is transnational repression? How should we define it? What are some examples of it? What are the arguments against it? And how does it relate to a broader discussion of structure in international relations? I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. Transnational repression is becoming an increasingly prominent phenomenon on the global political landscape. What I'd like to do today is just discuss transnational repression a little bit more. So in order to do this, we're going to use an article from a foreign affairs magazine that's recently published there called The Long Arm of Authoritarianism, How Dictators Reach Across Borders to Shut Down Dissent by Jana Gorokovskaya and Isabel Linzer from Freedom House. Uh, in order just to discuss transnational repression a little bit more. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this article, we're going to discuss what the article argues in favour for, uh, how it talks about transnational repression, how it argues that transnational repression can be combated, um, and even we're going to critique it a little bit to talk about sort of uh, uh, how it neglects the some sense of um, uh, uh, inversion of liberalism, perhaps, or how it relates back to sort of realist logics of national interest. And also, please go to social media. You'll be able to find Pollitt on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Please go and follow there. You'll be able to get loads of content that doesn't become a podcast episode. And alongside that, click that little subscribe button <laughs> on whatever platform you're listening to this on. Okay, let's begin. So the article I'd like to talk about today is called The Long Arm of Authoritarianism, How Dictators Reach Across Borders to Shut Down Dissent by uh, Jana Gorovskaya and Isabel Linzer. So recently, Jana Gorovskaya and Isabel Linzer of Freedom House, a prominent American think tank or institute, published a piece with Foreign Affairs magazine on the increasingly sentient global topic of transnational repression. So transnational repression is a phenomenon that can be understood as, quote, the efforts of governments to reach across borders to silence their critics, end quote, end quote. Actually, before we discuss their really rather interesting article in some depth, something I'd like to briefly ask is if this is too broad a definition of transnational repression. Could this definition, i.e. the efforts of governments to reach across borders to silence their critics, include critical foreign nationals who are not citizens of the critique state, but can be repressed in their own state. Say, if I became a particularly um, uh, a particularly uh, loud critic of the Chinese Communist Party, for example, if I was then repressed living in the United Kingdom, does that still count as transnational repression under this uh, particular definition? Um, and has that ever happened, actually? Like, does that include collateral damage, maybe, or even, like, secondary or secondary-level transnational repression? For example, my, me my mind immediately goes to uh, Dawn Sturgis, who was killed in the 2018 Amesbury poisoning and uh, attempted assassination by Novichok poisoning of former Russian officer and double agent Sergei Skripal. Could this fall into that? Is that an extension of transnational repression? Anyway, in a new Freedom House report, uh, Gorokovskaya and Linzer 
find that safe spaces for dissent are rapidly shrinking around the world. So their report is based on a data set of over 730 documented incidents, 735 actually, of explicit transnational repression that occurred between 2014 and 2021. Actually, I think this is a huge and somewhat surprising amount in that period. And interestingly, these are only the explicit examples of transnational repression. And I do kind of wonder what the criteria for an explicit example of transnational repression, as opposed to an implicit or implied example, would be. Anyway, in their report, they show that authoritarian governments are increasingly working together to help locate, threaten, detain and expel their critics. And this is fascinating because it means it's a phenomena of a kind of new uh, uh, um, uh, internationalism, a, a new kind of international cooperation, or at least uh, intergovernmental cooperation, we could say. So the purpose of this article is to elucidate this and examine the ways that such an illiberal cooperation can be offset. So is illiberal international cooperation a different kind of collective or self-interest or collectivized self-interest where the borders between the two are somewhat blurred? I think that's a good question. Does this defy the notion that, as some liberal internationalists have claimed, that states can only find common interest in liberal or rationalist ends? And alongside that, the other thing that I'd quite like to ask is that, of course, um, uh, the two researchers here are from Freedom House, but what's necessarily the difference between two illiberal states operating in this manner and two liberal states operating in this manner? Um, uh, uh, for example... Um, uh, in instances of uh, uh, deportations or in instances of special rendition. How is that in any way like particularly different? There is po probably a phenomenal difference, but I think it'd be interesting for that to be elucidated. Nonetheless, the central argument of their piece overall is that, quote, if democracies want to shore up liberal values and human rights worldwide, they could start by welcoming those who are risking their lives to stand up to authoritarian regimes, end quote. So the central kernel of this claim is that asylum extension goes hand in hand with the upholding of human rights, housing dissidents. And one of the things that I kind of immediately thought about when reading this was, would this not fall back on the age-old problem of eroding interstate relations as a result, as a result of who asylum is granted to? Like, just for example, A, pressure placed on the UK by the USSR over the Polish government in exile after critique following the 1943 uncovering of the Kachin massacre. Or B, perhaps even the relations between the US and Ecuador over Julian Assange's long-term asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And would a realist logic not eventually follow i.e. like asylum would be given so long as it didn't hinder the prudence of national interest. And the cases of Assange and the Polish government in exile are good illustrations of this, as both host states were eventually required to succumb to the necessities of national interest and power politics. Anyway, returning to the article... Quote, in 2021, the vast majority of incidents of transnational repression, actually 74%, 
were committed by authoritarian governments on the territory of other authoritarian states. So this undermines the self-determinate notion of territorial and jurisdictional integrity that illiberal democrats often demand be respected of their own states. Thus, even though, as I've already discussed, the logic of sovereignty may will out, the very action of transnational repression undermines it. Thus, perhaps for the sake of sovereignty and its integrity, such repression should be thoroughly reprehensible. Actually, one of the things that I, I kind of think about in relation to this is Karl Popper and the paradox of toleration, something that uh, uh, he discusses in The Open Society and Its Enemies. It's actually a footnote, if I recall. <laughs> uh, it's been so many years since I've read it, but uh, where he argues that the only way that one can save um, uh, tolerance from intolerance is being intolerant of the intolerant, is disallowing any group that wishes to ban tolerance broadly. And of course, like that's a that is a paradox in itself, but perhaps this is what's being discussed in relation to transnational repression. That those who engage in transnational repression should be transnationally repressed for the sake of sovereignty. Perhaps this is a line of argument which could be followed. But of course, illiberal democracies wouldn't see an issue of agreeing to eliminate one another's critics. And this does stem back to a, a, a notion of common or individual self-interest or the, 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 the interesting uh, part of this phenomena is how common and individual self-interest overlap, how the spread of illiberal values ultimately benefit the individual and only the individual, but in a common or collective way. So in one notable case, Russia deported a mixed martial arts fighter who, according to Radio Free Europe, had already been beaten and shot with rubber bullets while in police custody in Belarus, even after the European Court of Human Rights issued an opinion prohibiting his repatriation because of concerns about torture. Uh, he was only one of 22 incidents last year in which Belarusians in Russia were detained, extradited or threatened with extradition. So this certainly demonstrates the practical ineffectiveness of the European Court of Human Rights, um, although I say that in a week where the European Court of Human Rights have actually been rather effective in the UK at managing to ground a, a, a flight uh, set for Rwanda of um, uh, illegal immigrants slash asylum seekers. The, the, I say that because the legality now following the Nationalities and Borders Bill inside the UK is actually rather complicated. Um, and this case actually demonstrates the effectiveness of the European Court of Human Rights. But all these examples of transnational repression certainly demonstrate how ineffective the European Court of Human Rights can be and the manner in which authoritarian illiberal democratic states can, when engaging cooperatively to uphold their shared revisionist norms, actually outmaneuver the corpus of human rights law to the benefit of their respective regime. And perhaps we could refer to this less as a sort of uh, a reason of state or raison d'etat, but maybe an emergence of a transnational raison de gouvernant, right? I don't know, like a, a, a transnational reason of government. I don't know, this is fascinating. I think this is an interesting new phenomenon that could be emerging here. Um, now, there is an example uh, uh, that they give of uh, uh, Turkmenistan, which is really fascinating. I would definitely go away and read that. But can transnational repression become a tool of the uh, regional politics of assistance 
in order to shore up regional order and strengthen an increasingly multipolar world. Or even uh, uh, the idea that uh, one theorist or one thinker, uh, Amitavakaya, has had in the idea of a multiplex order, whereby regional stability and strength are significant factors that contribute to the character of global order broadly. I don't know. Anyway, in May 2021, the government of the UAE uh, detained a teenage Chinese activist for some time who was simply in transit, for example. So they were going through the Dubai, uh, through, uh, Dubai airport and consequently the UAE allowed uh, Chinese consular officials to try to coerce them into returning to China. Um, yeah, one thing I will say is, and this is sort of double-edged, is that... Um, uh, I thought complex interdependence in a liberal frame should perhaps undermine the necessity for the UAE to will to do this, though, because of that sheer number of different nexus or that nexus like set of connections between um, uh, 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 the UAE and Western states and, of course, UAE and China. Um, so maybe one thing we can see is that transnational repression is a manner, can be a way in which uh, complex interdependence can be seen to be eroding, as complex interdependence in a liberal frame from Keahane and Nye should shore up a kind of bulwark against this kind of repression. But yet it still happens. So maybe it's a really good uh, symptom that uh, complex interdependence is being undermined in itself. Um... Um, of course, that's only if the liberal assessment is correct, no? And this is especially so given the extent to which the UAE is plugged into the web of interconnectedness that complex interdependence creates, as I say. Or maybe can you have competing complex interdependences which are not necessarily all of a liberal nature? I think that's a really interesting question to ask is as global order is shifting, the assumption has always been that you have multipolar, unipolar or bipolar order. But maybe you can have a sort of bimultipolar order where you have different sets of multipolarities or two distinct sets of multipolarities with two poles never engaging with one another, but client states or states that one do engage with engage with one another. Interesting. So uh, uh, when we talk about the convergence of such activity of um, uh, a transnational repression, Turkey is very much becoming the site for this, for this kind of activity, where we're even now seeing a reversal of what we would consider traditional Turkish foreign policy in the normative sense. So in the article it said that, quote, for instance, Turkey was a long time safe haven for Ouija's, Ouija Muslims, but it has recently become a dangerous place for the Ouija diaspora. In 2021, Turkish authorities harassed groups of Ouija activists by arresting them and threatening them with deportation to China. End quote. This is a qualitative change, therefore. Turkey has transpired to be not quite the haven for Islam it preaches itself to be. And this means, or very perhaps reveals or teases that Turkey sees its national interest as lying closer to China and good relations with China than with the normative dimension of the Muslim world perhaps and I think that would be a really interesting shift if that's proven to be correct.
Okay, quote, autocrats are increasingly working together to help locate, detain, and expel their critics, end quote. So this quotation entails within it all of the questions that we've already discussed concerning the inverted liberal internationalism, i.e. an illiberal internationalism, which is a fundamentally new phenomenon. Uh, I don't really like connecting illiberalism to the 1930s or to some, anything reminiscent of the 1930s because everything of the 1930s should be clearly conceptually def uh, definitive, should be clearly conceptually defined from what we're experiencing today. Um, but one thing I do think is kind of interesting is the way that the revisionist powers of the 1930s were connected by a loose ideological framework as opposed to a, a sort of strongman politics, uh, which is less ideological than it is illiberal. So this is perhaps uh, uh, where uh, certain thinkers that invert liberalism in itself or try to understand how liberalism inverts itself, uh, one example being Philip Cunliffe's Cosmopolitan, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, can actually become a useful tool here where we can see how uh, uh, liberal inversions have certain consequences and how liberals have led to their own inversion or how liberal um, uh, nation states and liberal politics and liberal ideology broadly has allowed for its own inversion and indeed acted on that itself. So although they do share illiberal values, the extent to which this is more of a bind between these states than political expediency and convenience as an extension of reason of government remains questionable. So in April 2021, a, a Turkish court agreed to transfer the trial being held in connection with the 2018 murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi Arabian dissident and journalist, to the same Saudi authorities who had been implicated in his killing. So this is a particularly significant turning point as it illustrated the selective use of sovereignty and intervention. But perhaps this is the world that was opened with an international politics defined by intervention in the 1990s. This is perhaps a, a, something which a lot of international relations thinkers don't necessarily think about is that intervention in the 1990s, this kind of reliance on intervention, opens up the space to normalise and allow for interventions of all different kinds. So intervention by friendly regimes isn't necessarily considered intervention, or might be considered as transactional, gaining power or influence for the self-erosion of, ter of territorial sovereignty, which I think is particularly significant. So these parallel trends converge to form an ominous forecast. Autocrats will have more and more opportunities to cooperate moving forward. But that is the world that liberalism will to create, no? Like a world of cooperating states. I think what's interesting is that from a liberal frame, this kind of cooperation, although it is like really nefarious because it's repressive, uh, and I'd be the first to admit that, the emphasis on liber of liberal internationalism and indeed some modes of neoliberalism for a long time now have been simply to argue that cooperation between states ends the likelihood of war. We know this is democratic peace thesis, right? Uh, or, or even capitalist peace thesis if we're talking about this in a financial and economic um, ground. But a world of cooperating states is what liberalism has always argued ceases the creation of war. What's interesting is how now the kind of cooperation uh, that is illiberal is not necessarily able to be grasped by liberals themselves, i.e. Uh, what I mean by this is that 
um, uh, this is deemed to be of a lesser quality, a lesser quality of cooperation because it is not liberal. And I think that's an, a new interesting phenomenon, this idea of illiberal cooperation, as I say, between states. Um, and whether or not that is what liberalism has always argued defers or deters war. So, quote, citizens of Belarus and Central Asia go to Russia, where they do not need a visa to enter. People escaping Cambodia, Laos or Vietnam often cross the border into neighbouring Thailand. Um, Ouija's leave China by escaping to Egypt or Turkey, and these places are attractive because they're accessible. But although they may provide a short-term refuge, they do not offer long-term protection, end quote. So what the argument, what the, the, the authors of this really good piece of writing thought-provoking piece are talking about is that accessibility is what is required by liberal states to make dissenters more able to enter and again this could cause issues in relations with these states so illiberal democracies are not small states nobody has ever heard of <laughs> they're states which can't be ignored and so this tension might indeed come to define the coming eras where opening of accessibility or opening of asylum for dissidents um, uh, can lead to more wrought relations between states? Or will that not even happen itself because of a return to power politics and national interest, as I said above? So they say that living in a robust democracy with strong legal systems and high levels of security is by far the best protection against transnational repression. My only question about this is maybe, is this too loose? Like, what is a robust democracy? Is Hungary a robust democracy? Or even is Ukraine a robust democracy? I mean, one of the interesting things I think about Ukraine is that um, uh, since the uh, completely illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which, of course, most of us still stand behind Ukraine in the academic uh, community, um, if I can include myself in that, <laughs> uh, but most stand behind Ukraine in this. I think that it's a, a misnomer. I think it's incorrect to consider Ukraine to be some sort of font of dim font of liberal democracy, considering how even in Freedom House's own uh, uh, survey of freedom in the world last year, uh, they were seen as a partial democracy or a, a, a lower semi-democracy. Okay, so what, when we use the phrase robust democracy, is this not just shorthand for simply suggesting that any non-Western or like non-European or non-Western European or just simply non-Anglo or non-America um, uh, 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 European uh, democracy is not robust as a democratic system, perhaps. All right, so to meet the challenge of global authoritarianism, the authors claim that democracies must challenge their approach to asylum. And the point here is that accessibility equates to the protection of the dissident. And so in order to protect dissidents under a liberal democratic frame, democracies must make uh, uh, asylum more accessible or must make refuge more accessible. So the example they actually give in this case is, is against Rwanda or in regards to Rwanda. So Rwanda is controlled by an authoritarian regime and is itself an attractive perpetrator of transnational repression. This is interesting. So in the latest uh, Freedom uh, uh, in the World Index, uh, Rwanda has a score of 22 out of 100, an 8 for political rights and 14 for civil liberties. Okay. Um, in one case, for political rights, it's out of 40. For civil liberties, it's out of 60. 
if I remember correctly. <laughs> so Rwandans abroad experience digital threats, spyware attacks, family intimidation and harassment, mobility controls, physical intimidation, assault, detention, rendition and assassination in relation to transnational repression. Uh, so the government has physically targeted Rwandans in at least seven countries since 2014, including the Democratic Republic of Congo and Kenya, as well as, as, well as far further afield like South Africa and the UAE or Germany. And I think this is a significant point, because in light of this recent history, the UK should be fully aware that its decision to offshore its responsibility for the asylum process to Rwanda will only help authoritarian governments seeking to target dissidents by consigning political refugees to the care of an authoritarian state. This opens up the space for certain individuals to be um, uh, outsourced to authoritarian states. And that's the opposite of accessibility or the protection of dissent. And I think that could open the space for a lot more illiberal connection between states. So tools like the red notices issued by the International Criminal Police Organization, by Interpol, uh, which inform member countries about internationally wanted fugitives, are actually increasingly being used by authoritarian governments to legally detain and extradite dissidents. But to meet the bigger challenge of rising global authoritarianism, especially as non-democratic governments increasingly cooperate to stifle dissent, democracies must first and foremost change their approach to asylum. So as we've already discussed, the tools of liberal internationalism have become part of the very toolkit of illiberal democratic systems and illiberal internationalism. And one of the things I think is really important to ask is that, is this the condoning of a new bipolar order in construction, as I say? A liberal or neoliberal will for the division of states on a structural level of power polarity. Um, uh, I mean that will in terms of like a want, right? A liberal and the illiberal want for a division of states on a structural level of power polarity, where you have sort of illiberal states that are deemed revisionist, um, that are deemed to be sort of nefarious, even though they are cooperating and they are cooperative in, uh, uh, in uh, sort of extending this notion of complex interdependence that liberals and neoliberals always wanted, always argued for. So again, perhaps the broad warnings uh, laid bare in the security dilemma are lost once again, that by engaging in this kind of um, open accessibility, that can lead to a, a, a disconnect between states or a, a, um, a, a kind of a mirrored aggression diplomatically um, uh, that actually increases the likelihood for war. So maybe that's lost once again amongst liberals, the, the importance of the security dilemma, not necessarily as a rigid, um, a rigid structure, but as a more uh, a broad notion that Hertz discusses, the person that comes up with the security dilemma. So um, uh, uh, finally, one of the things that we can say is uh, as long as democratic governments enact ever more restrictive policies on asylum, and this is a quote, sorry, they will continue to trap vulnerable people in parts of the world where autocrats make the rules. Um, and maybe there's sort of laws of unintended consequences here, i.e. like not to not on a level of like a slippery slope argument or a straw man of open borders, but the effect of such an act could have, have a, a sort of unintended consequences, A, diplomatically, 
on individual relations with other states. B, systematically, or systemically, sorry, uh, as to the extent that this could adapt the development of the global power structure into a distinct and unfamiliar structural or even security constellation. So immediately when I was thinking about this, when I was writing up my notes for this, my mind went to NATO and Turkey might be actually really key in this. So to prevent a block of revisionist powers from erupting in response and thus issuing in a new kind of Manichaean era of bipolarity, Turkey's security must be ensured by NATO to keep it on side. Um, uh, but then Turkey, by engaging in such action as um, uh, transnational repression, almost or illiberal in itself or revisionist, um, uh, becomes a weak link that can allow itself to be abused for influence. So maybe there's more to think about in relation to these kind of broader security constellations or the uh, the systemic responses from harboring as many dissidents as possible on a national interest level. Will that have an effect on uh, 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 certain security constellations? C, economically, so collapsing trade and production that the core states have made interestingly themselves dependent on <laughs> by making others dependent on their dependence. And lastly, D, some kind of domestic blowback, um, uh, like a, a Trump or Putin effect, whereby illiberal Democrats gain political traction by exploiting the situation caused by a lack of connection with those illiberal authoritarian states, arguing that such a policy is madness or limits opportunity. And what I mean by this is that this may, uh, may cause many to in turn gain a sense of sympathy for the illiberal in a tribal or reflective way as we can see has happened somewhat with the war in, war in Ukraine and misinformation or sympathy for the Russian state specifically on social media by Republicans or in the US or right-wingers in the UK or those in Europe that depend on Russian energy and product imports like Hungary or Orban. I mean, Hungary, Orban hasn't necessarily been the most um, uh, uh, negative individual towards Putin and the Russian state, but he certainly hasn't been entirely... Um, uh, entirely um, dismissive <laughs> of Putin's Russia. And this is perhaps something that we've seen with, uh, uh, as I say, with right-wingers in Germany as well. So yeah, so when we talk about transnational repression, I think it can be very easy, and this is a very good article, by the way, because this particular article allows us to sort of explore uh, what the general liberal or neoliberal response to transnational repression is, which is to simply say that yes, uh, we should open accessibility for all dissidents without necessarily considering what the outcome of that would be. And also why that phenomena is taking place and the extent to which liberalism has had a hand in forging that phenomenon. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, talking about transnational repression on the Pollock podcast. Thank you ever so much for listening. And if you haven't already done so, please go and check out Pollock on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and TikTok. It would mean absolutely the world to me if you could just click on that little follow and subscribe button. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.